I'm driving down Pontiac Avenue, which is a road in Cranston, Rhode Island. And I, you know, I leave, I leave about two or three car lengths between me and the people in front. I'm driving down and just past the fire station. I'm looking and I see this person walk across the street. All of a sudden I see a car stop. And then I hear boom. And I hear that awful crunching sound of just metal and plastic crunching up. And I said to myself, I said, oh no, here it is. Here's these poor folks. Somebody wasn't paying attention. Somebody stopped in the front and the other people plowed into them, you know, and, and I'm sure it's going to be an issue between the two people in back, right? Who hit who first? Did he stop? Did he not stop? Did he stop short? You know, all the excuses come out for the insurance company not to pay. But when we're talking about legal issues and we're talking about why, why is an insurance company willing to settle this case? Why is it they're saying he said, she said, it's because they have arguments and those arguments could be for example who had the right of way another argument that insurance companies use is who had the last clear chance and so you mean what does that mean last clear chance well last clear chance is a defense in law it's not a very good defense to be honest with you but it's a defense the insurance companies use to say well if this person was halfway across the road, you had, you should have seen them coming across the road, even though you were in your lane of travel and you had the last clear chance to stop, which means that you're at fault, even though you were in your lane of travel. I mean, come on now. How crazy is this? It's crazy, right? I, I think it's, it's just, but it's a defense that they've developed over the years and it's a defense to mitigate, in other words, to reduce their liability, to reduce the amount that they have to pay. So another case that's been sitting in my office, I've been working on. And you're, you, now, see, when I tell you this story, you're going to say, Stephen, really, seriously, like, how could this happen? So during that one snowstorm, client was visiting a retail outlet, let's just say, for argument's sake. And while they're there, they're walking into the store, okay? And there was snow in the parking lot, and there was snow on the ground. And they were walking up the steps, and there was three steps to enter this particular location. And as they were walking up the steps, their foot slipped out. Um, they couldn't grab the handrail for whatever reason. It was slippery. There was snow on it, and they fell back. And when they fell back, they fractured their wrist. And they had a hairline fracture in the clavicle. So you're talking about a serious, you know, some serious injury here. Somebody got hurt, you know, how much snow was on the ground. So we, 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 you know, we go through the claim process and we're saying, well, you know, do you have a duty? And that's what comes down to negligence. And so our Supreme Court in Rhode Island has held as far as duty and snow, our Supreme Court has held that when in fact there is a snowstorm and you're the owner of property, it's not your duty to remove every single snowflake, but it is your duty to make it reasonably safe, which means that you may have an obligation to go shovel if there's about an inch of snow. Um, you may have an obligation to throw down some salt and sand if you're soliciting people to come into your property. 
You may have an obligation to clean the handrails to make sure somebody could use a handrail while walking or to clean the walkway. But it's not your duty to go out there every second while it's snowing to clean things. So there's a distinction there as to when your responsibility is. So in that particular circumstance, this, this poor woman fell down, okay, and she was going into this establishment. She had an appointment. And so with that being said, going into the establishment with the appointment, she slipped and fell. Now, I'm going to tell you the defense the insurance company came up with. And you're going to sit there and you're going to say to yourself, well, huh, I guess that could apply to anything. All right. So my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. The number here is 401-438-9776. 401-438-9776. This is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips. We're heading into our first break. And when we come back, we'll be back in just a minute. Okay, we're back. Stacking Benjamins with Joe and his good friend OG not only has great financial insight, it's laid back with humor too. Joe talks with Stacking Deeds co-host Crystal Hammond. I've always been a fan of nosy neighbors. I want nosy neighbors. They can tell you what's going on 10 times faster than you would know. Again, what's she talking about, Doug? Really? (laughs) We're repairing neighborhoods, but then we're into nosy neighbors and build a career off of that. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. This is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Answering your questions, giving out some advice on this beautiful day. And we are talking about interesting topics and issues. And so this interesting topic and issue had to do with a slip and fall accident and what would be going on relative to um, what's happening relative to uh, a slip and fall case. Um, We are talking about uh, issues with slip and fall accidents. And so here we go. When we're dealing with a slip and fall accident and this particular slip and fall accident, as I was describing, was a particular individual who was visiting an establishment. And unfortunately, they were walking up three or four steps. And as they felt they fell back, they broke their wrist. They broke their clavicle. Very uh, serious injuries, uh, something serious to be considered with. And we talked about what our Supreme Court has held in the past. And our Supreme Court has held in the past that, look, if you hold yourself out to the public, you don't have a duty to make sure that every single snowflake is removed from your walkway. Okay, I'm just talking about this because we're heading into the, the winter season. That means you don't have to run out there every two seconds and shovel your walkway, but you have a duty to make it reasonably safe. So in this particular circumstance, this young person, they were in their 30s. When they fell, obviously they were taken by ambulance and and whatnot. Now the insurance company, and we're talking about defenses and things insurance companies throw up, slip and fall cases are usually very hard to prove. And the reason why is, is it's establishing the duty of care. In other words, did the landowner neglect their duty to make sure that walkway was reasonably safe? That's what you have to prove. Now, sometimes, for example, let's say you get out of your car and you step into a pothole that's a couple inches deep and you fall down. Well, that's kind of a clear neglect. But when we're talking about snow, rain, elements, leaves, 
and slips and falls, it becomes a different situation where you're trying to figure out, well, how much of a duty did they have? Did they breach their duty? So the insurance company came back and said, they're not paying on this claim. And they had a different defense in this particular situation. And so, you know, you start saying to yourself, hmm, well, maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't snowing that bad. Maybe they're saying that they were shoveling. Maybe they said they put salt down. No, this one was different. They said that because my client was wearing sneakers, that sneakers have a non-rubber sole. And therefore, it was their fault that they fell down. And I started thinking about that. And I said, wow, that's a really new, that's a new one. Now I have heard the slipper defense. For example, I have had a client who was going into a medical facility and they had slippers because they were undergoing a medical treatment and they fell down. And they said, because it was slippers with a leather sole that caused their fall. This one they're saying sneakers are not rubber soles and therefore they lack the traction and it's my client's fault. I think that's a long road to hoe on their part for defense. So I have I have seen the slipper defense. I've seen the leather sole defense that, in other words, if you're going to go out into snowy weather and or someplace where it's going to be, you're going to be going onto somebody else's property, they have an obligation to maybe put a boot on that's more akin to giving you grip so you won't fall. Um, and so what their defense is, is essentially going to say that because my client had these sneakers on, these sneakers had insufficient traction. That's why she fell. So their client never breached their duty of care. Now, you might say to yourself, now, come on, that's stretching the slipper defense a little bit too far. You know, we're really pushing the envelope here. Now we're going to start testing the soles of shoes to determine whether or not somebody's at fault. And, you know, you, 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 it begins, you start scratching your head. Now, after 26 years of practicing law and dealing with these issues, I, I mean, I can tell you I've seen everything. And sometimes I call it the spaghetti approach. The insurance company throws us big blob of spaghetti up against the wall and hope something stick. And maybe there's some sauce up there that can muck up the wall a little bit. But in this particular situation, my client did have sneakers on. She admitted she had sneakers on and um, didn't recall. It's been three years almost since this case started in dealing with the insurance company. But, um, you know, I guess my counter to that defense is, do you have an expert that says that those particular pair of sneakers are not suitable to wear in snow? I mean, I've worn sneakers in the snow to shovel my walkway. I'm sure a lot of you wear sneakers everywhere we go whenever we're out walking. And so you say to yourself, is that reasonable? So they're saying they want a trial. They actually want a trial. They, nope, we want a trial on this issue. We're going to court. And so, I mean, that might be something, you know, unfortunately, you know, the trial calendar is still a little backed up. You're still looking at about a year and a half to get a trial, but that might be something that might come up um, at a later date. You know, you may be listening to me in another couple of years. I'll be talking about the sneaker slip and fall case when we went to trial and how I won. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to convince them to go to arbitration on this case. And my client actually has the sneakers that she used. And we could bring the sneakers to arbitration and let the the pretty aggressive souls 
It was like cross training sneakers. So, you know, so in, in any event, you have insurance companies where they're looking at these issues and they're saying to themselves, you know, they throw out these defenses and you say, why do they do that? Why do they do that? In other words, what is the motive? I thought the insurance was there to take care of me if I'm in a car accident, take care of me if I'm hurt, do these things. But their motive and their their modus operandi, so to speak, is to diligently represent and defend their interest. Even if you know they have to defend their client and they're going to come up with every sort of argument, every sort of issue, every defense possible not to pay. And with those defenses, they'll also bring them up at trial. Now, will they be able to present this sneaker defense at trial? You know, I really don't know. Um, obviously, my client, if we go to trial, will have to testify as to the types of shoes she was wearing. And with that, she'll have to testify and explain that she had these sneakers on. Here they are. Here's the treads. You know, she saw that. And, and just so you know, one of the other things that, that they do, it, they love to do this. Well, you saw there was snow on the ground. What precautions did you take before entering the thing? You know, and if this person's saying I had to go in for a doctor's appointment, I was walking in the building. I, I don't know. I, I grabbed the handrail. I was walking up the steps. You know, I mean, how do you, what are you supposed, are you supposed to carry a snow shovel with yourself? I don't know. I'm looking at it from my perspective. And I guess if I was on the other side of the fence, I'd probably be looking at it from that perspective as well. But that's sort of like that last clear chance defense where they're saying, you know, you had the last clear chance to clear the snow yourself before you went in the building. I don't know. But these things come up. And 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 so these cases, sometimes, you know, these cases happen, they resolve themselves right away. So when you when you're injured in, in these types of situations, sometimes the case will resolve itself right away. The insurance company will step up and acknowledge that you know somebody was severely injured or injured and they will acknowledge that they have to settle the case and resolve it other times other times they'll say it's a he said she said like i explained in the beginning where we have a uh um we have a two cars traveling one in the lane of travel and the other one slides through and they say oh no we're not responsible or in this case where they're trying to throw up the slipper defense to say that uh Maybe my client shouldn't have been wearing sneakers on a snowy day. I will see, you know, I'll let you know, I'll, I'll report to you on these cases. If in fact, the top one, the first one, the car accident one is going to arbitration. And I don't know about the second one. So I suspect once they meet my clients, the arbitrator, they're going to determine that they're telling the truth. And the second one, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The insurance company doesn't want to go to arbitration. They don't have an obligation to. And they may very well just want to try this case. So we'll have to see. It'll be another trial that I'll chalk up as another win on my trial record history. So in any event, my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. I want to thank everybody for listening. And, you know, I truly appreciate everybody listening to this show. We are here live every week to give you information. 
to keep you abreast of local news. And that could be Rhode Island. I'm, I'm licensed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, and my daughter is now licensed in Connecticut. So hopefully we're going to be able to start moving things and um, also helping customers and clients who call me on the show uh, with Connecticut questions because now she's a licensed attorney in Connecticut next week. She's getting sworn in. So that's a wonderful thing. And um, we'll be Rhode Island, Mass, and Connecticut, which is a good thing because I have a lot of folks who give me a call say, you know, Stephen, I, you know, I need help with this, but it's right over the line from Rhode Island. And, you know, Rhode Island has a large border with Massachusetts and Connecticut, and we see more between Rhode Island and Massachusetts. I do a lot of Massachusetts probate, or I'll do small uh, litigation cases in Massachusetts, but Massachusetts, because they're now going back into a more, they're coming off of the WebEx or the Zoom platform and they're going more into in-person. You know, most attorneys that localizes you because in mass, you're not gonna have somebody from Boston drive to Springfield to handle a case. You're gonna have to hire an attorney in Springfield. Whereas in Rhode Island, one attorney such as myself, I can handle all four counties, whether it be Newport, Washington, Providence, or Kent, because they're all within a, basically within a 15 mile radius of one another. So in any event, my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips. We're heading into the middle of the road break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about some interesting questions I've received during the week. I've received a lot of uh, trust questions and Medicaid questions. And I just want to go over some of that during this week. All right. So we'll be back in just a minute. And Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Crisis aired March 3rd, 2004. Director Kenneth Biller. He was a weird guy. He was talented and I liked him, but he was he was a weird fella. The production loved him. The cast, mm, Ken, if you're out there, uh, I'm sure we'd get along. A lot of these people, I don't want to call them pawns, but in a TV production, even directors are a lot of times pawns. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. At Arizona State University, we've made online education better, smarter, and more personalized so you can go further in your aspiring field. I decided to pursue medicine once I realized that ASU did have the online program for biological sciences. You're still required to learn the same curriculum. You're still being tested on the same content that anyone would be tested on in person. The comprehensiveness of the program prepared me so well for medical school. Explore over 300 programs at asuonline.asu.edu. Um, I am going through some questions that I've received during the week. And so I do a lot of probate. I do a lot of estate planning and I do a lot of probate appeals. And so one of the questions I received had to do with a probate appeal case. And so let me explain this to you. When you go to probate court, if you're unhappy with the decision of a probate judge, let's say you're on the other side of the fence. And let's say, for example, you your mother wrote a will 10 years ago and said 50-50 between you and your brother. Now your mother rewrites the will and says 100% to my brother. And now you're looking at that and you're saying, well, this isn't really fair. I mean, why would mom do this? Why would mom do this? And now your brother doesn't want to talk to you. He doesn't want to give you any answers. And you're saying to yourself, well, what's going on? So your brother now files a probate. He's got a valid will. It was signed and the witnesses' signatures were notarized. 
And he presents that will and says, judge, I am the sole person here. And I am also the executor of this will. You now go to court and either you show up and contest it or you don't show up and it gets granted. In either case, an order is going to enter. And if you're unhappy with the admission of that will uh, to be probated, because once that will is admitted, you have to appeal it to the superior court and ask for basically a trial, what's called de novo, brand new. And you get a trial on the issue of the admission of the will. Now, the reason why that is so important is because if you don't appeal in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, almost all the states, if you fail to raise an issue at a lower court or timely appeal an issue, you waive it in the future. So what I mean is, if you go to the probate hearing, and this will is now admitted by the probate judge, and then you sit back three months, and then you're thinking about it and stewing on it, and you say to yourself, I'm unhappy with that, I want to appeal it. And you now say, well, the upper court's going to say, first of all, your appeal's untimely. Second of all, you fail to raise the issue timely. And you're going to be stuck with receiving zero from the estate. So if there's an issue that's presented at the inception of a probate, whether it's the admission of a will or an appointment of an executor, you have to raise those issues at that time. Vitally important. Now, what type of issues could you bring up? What are valid issues to contest those two types of things? Well, you can contest a person who's nominated as an executor of an estate if, if they've had problems in the past. So, for example, maybe they were charged with some crime involving fraud or theft. Maybe they um, are significantly in debt and you're concerned that the estate could be depleted or stolen. Or maybe they've been charged with some other crime, which may be a felony, like felony abuse or assault. Those are issues that could disqualify somebody as a fiduciary. Well, when can you contest a will? Well, you can contest a will essentially uh, the biggest part of it is proving that the person did not have the capacity to sign the will at the time. So there's there's a real foundational issue in law. And, and I, as a matter of fact, I've raised this issue many times myself, not just in probate, but in other courts. In order for somebody to testify or in order for somebody to enter a contract, they have to have the capacity to do so. That means they have to be able to understand the consequences of their actions, and they have to be able to understand the consequences of their testimony or that their testimony will be truthful. So if you have a person who signed a will 10 years ago, and then 
just prior to their death, re-signed the will, leaving everything to their son. Was there an issue there? Is there something there that would have um, caused that? For example, did the person have the capacity to sign the will? Now, what do I mean by capacity? Well, were they suffering from Alzheimer's, dementia, mental health-related issues? Maybe they didn't have the capacity to sign the will and understand the consequences of the action, okay? The second type of lack of capacity is called undue influence. <laughs> now, undue influence basically means that somebody insinuates themselves into somebody else's life in such a way that they are able to influence the way is they are able to influence the way this person writes their will or changes their will. And now those are two ways to contest a will, lack of capacity or undue influence, which means that somebody so influenced you to do something that you did not want to do. And of course, that's that's those two elements are difficult to prove. The first one could be proven with medical records and perhaps a doctor's testimony that based on the medical records, the person lacked capacity. The second one would have to be proven by outside circumstances. For example, friends of the family who you would have to test, get to testify to say that this particular brother put himself in her life in such a way that she was afraid not to sign this will, that he would abandon her and she would have to provide her own care. So those are two ways to attack a will. One way is what's called lack of capacity, okay, which is proven generally through medical records and documentation. The second one is what's called undue influence which means that somebody, and you have to use outside sources again, to show that somebody so unduly influenced someone that they uh, caused this particular individual to sign something that they would not have signed but for that influence. Now, if you fail to raise those issues at the initial probate court hearing, you fail to bring that up and say, judge, these are issues that I'm going to present. I want a hearing. And the judge says, admits the will and admits this person as the fiduciary, you must appeal timely. And if you don't raise that appeal, you waive your rights. Again, it's a raise or waive. You either raise the issue or you waive the issue. And so, so vitally important if you feel that something isn't right, talk to an attorney express your concerns, and then that attorney can hone out what it is that you may be able to do to protect your interest or, or even set aside that new will. And so that way the old will prevails with a 50-50 split. All right, we're heading into our last break. So my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Of course, I'm here every week to help guide you through the maze that is the law today. And it is a maze. You know, unfortunately, we do go through a lot of ups and downs and we do see changes in the law. But you've heard me say this so many times. 
the law changes very slowly. And that's a good thing because there are things called precedent that we rely on. There are things that preceded your case that either help you or could hurt you, but at least we can rely on to help guide you through that maze so that you understand what your rights are. And that goes for adverse possession cases. It goes for cases where you have to force a sale of real estate. It goes to probate, it goes to real estate cases. It goes to personal injury cases. All of that is all based on law that's been developing over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, you know, it's so important to understand and to have an attorney who understands what the precedent is and how it affects your particular case. So we're heading into our last break. Uh, this is it. And then we're going right up to the top of the hour. So the number, uh, well, actually, uh, my office number, just in case you wanted to speak with me, is 401-490-4900, 401-490-4900. I will be in the office all week. And of course, a lot of folks give me a call at the office. They say, you know, Stephen, we were listening to you on the radio and um, I figured I'd just give you a call. And, and a lot of times I try to pick up the phone. If I can't pick up the phone, I try to return all calls within 24 hours. That's a general thing. Of course, if you call me on a weekend while I'm doing my show, you're not going to get a call back till tomorrow anyway. But for the most part, you can always find us online. We're doing some updates to our website. So it's working well, but um, we're trying to update with Jacqueline's picture and email and stuff like that. So that way we can introduce our new associate to everybody as well, who will be working under my tutelage, uh, much like I did when I started. I started the same way. I started working under an, under a, a much senior attorney who guided me, and I worked for them for about three years until I learned how to do things, not only do things, not just apply the law, but actually how to argue in court and how to try a case and how to argue before the Supreme Court and how to present a case and how to meet with clients and explain the ups and downs and positives and negatives. So we're heading into our last break. And um, my name is attorney Steve LeVake, and we'll be back in just a minute. All right. Looks like we're back on. This is attorney Steve LeVake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. And of course, I'm going to take it right up to the top of the hour. And we are talking about a question that I receive a lot. Okay. What happens if I need long-term care services? What happens? And, and let me explain to you how I explain it to all my clients. <clears throat> we have a system that's structured as follows. You have folks who perhaps are in a situation where they do not have um, money or they don't have the ability to pay for their care. And, you know, we can't have, you know, people not getting care. So they need care and they'll get it. And you have folks who um, who I represent on a regular basis who may be worth, you know, three, four, five, ten million dollars. And you say to yourself, okay, um, they're probably just going to pay for their care and decide wherever they want to be and pay for it, right? I mean, then you have a, a kind of, I would say the balance of the 75% of the population, which is everybody in the middle. You know, you work your whole life, you squirreled away enough, maybe to have a house paid off, maybe a second house, like an investment property paid off, maybe have some small amount of savings or that you may have inherited or that you invested frugally. And you say to yourself, well, Stephen, 
what happens to me if I need a nursing home? <laughs> what happens if I have to go into long-term care? And well, what happens? Well, the first thing is you're not eligible for Medicaid unless you have less than $4,000 in assets. Now, there are some exclusions, but for example, what I, what I just described, that multifamily house or that second home that you own with no mortgage on it, that's not considered the residence. That's a countable resource, which means that Medicaid would say option A is you sell that resource, take the money and use it to pay for your care until you're below the $4,000 threshold. That's your option, option A. <laughs> now, the second prong of this is if you have um, investment accounts. Now, fortunately, the government has said that 401ks and IRAs are exempt, except the required minimum distributions that you're taking. So those RMDs, pension payments, um, social security payments, all go directly to pay for your care. But if you do have a 401k or IRA, you can name a beneficiary on that account. And what that means is, even though the nursing home will take your required minimum distributions, the balance of that account could go to a designated beneficiary. That's a good thing. Bad thing, you die now in the nursing home or wherever, and you still, your name is on your house. What happens to your house? Well, I'm going to tell you, when you pass away, two very important agencies are notified of your passing. The first one is what's called the D Division of Taxation. They get notified because if you owe any taxes, they want to put a lien on your house or they want to get paid. The second one is the Office of Health and Human Resources or Medicaid office. They get notified. And what they do is they say, okay, you received care for the last three years at $12,000 a month. And therefore, you now owe us $370,000. They then put a lien on your house, which means that now your kids have to sell the house. So how do you protect yourself? You can protect yourself by setting up trust, Medicaid trust, irrevocable trust, and preparing for the future. It's so vitally important to pass along. Now, if you're in the upper category that I spoke about, you could also incorporate that. You could do some Medicaid trust planning, and you could do some tax planning to try to defer some taxes. But for the 70% in the middle, as I've discussed, you're really in a situation where you need to plan to, number one, avoid probate. You always want to avoid probate. I can tell you it costs so much to go through probate, especially when families fight. If you use a trust and you use beneficiary designations and you avoid probate, you can avoid so much fight between your family, number one. Number two, you can protect your assets so that they go to your children, your grandchildren. What you've worked for your whole life can be passed on to those who you love without losing all of the equity without being forced to sell and 
diversify yourself. So my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Of course, I'm here every Sunday to help guide you through the maze that is the law today. I want to thank everybody who listened today. Former Navy SEAL Mike Ritland keeps it real on the Mike Drop podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Rudy Reyes. The ethics of martial arts is why I joined the Marine Corps. I never thought I was going to join the military because I'd been around so much gun violence, and I wanted to be the antithesis of that. I loved fighting hand-to-hand. It's fair. You don't have to kill your opponent. You can beat them with a and skill. Mic drop. Raw. Unfiltered. Intellectually sound. Wherever you listen.